Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. The writing of history is never static. Generations come and go. University-based historians typically take their first steps under the guidance of an experienced faculty member who will suggest a particular topic because she or he has identified a gap in knowledge. Freelance writers will pick a topic that will hopefully find a market, as their success depends on sales, not so much on bringing to light new knowledge. Tastes change, and history changes with it. The history of Canada's black community is now riding a wave of popularity, and my guests for this episode have united their energies with many others to create a bold new book on this topic. They are Michelle Johnson at York University and Fouquet Aladejibi at the University of Toronto. Their book is entitled Unsettling the Great White North, Black Canadian History, and it is published by the University of Toronto Press. I reached them both at their offices, Dr. Aladijibi in Toronto, where it's minus 20, and Dr. Johnson in Jamaica, where it is 29 degrees. Michelle and Funke, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Witness to Yesterday. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's so good to be here. witness to yesterday for this episode. What happened on August 12th, 1911? Well, on August 12th, 1911, as it happens, I have what um, might be an important document. I just pulled it up. It's called um, Ordering Council, number 1324. And at the government house at Ottawa, over the signature of Wilf Wilfred Laurier, there is an order in council which says, His Excellency in Council, in virtue of the provisions of subsection C of section 38 of the Immigration Act, is pleased to order, and it is hereby ordered as follows. For a period of one year from and after the date hereof, the landing in Canada shall be and the same is prohibited of any immigrants belonging to the Negro race, which race is deemed unsuitable to the climate and requirements of Canada. So this date is important in black history because it was a date where the Canadian government made it official that they did not want black people to immigrate to this country. Maybe Funky would like to pick up on that. Absolutely. So I think that because this um, order in council really worked to explicitly ban persons of African descent from entering Canada, they also structured why they would be banned, right, under this notion that they were unsuitable to the climate of Canada, but also to the requirements of what it meant to be a Canadian citizen. And so I think it's one of the earliest policies where we really begin to see the broader social sentiment and the way in which the broader social sentiment in Canada was backed by law. And although the order in council was not um, fully put into law or was rescinded two months later, I think it represents a particular kind of moment, the moment of ongoing westward expansion, but particularly what happened when an increasing rise of African-American immigration, largely from Oklahoma into western provinces like Saskatchewan and Alberta, and the anxiety that it caused as Canadians were really trying to confront 
what it meant to deal with Black Canadian communities or Black communities coming into Canada. I think it's an important point you're making. Even though the order in council is rescinded in October, and I can't tell if it was done after the new government came in, this is the Robert Borden government, or whether it was actually done by the, uh, the Laurier government itself, it's still very symbolic that there was an impulse in Canada among, uh, among government leaders uh, that black immigration was not an acceptable um, phenomenon and that it had to be it had to be stopped or had to be um, somehow uh, impeded. Again, it's important to, 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 to remember that it was rescinded, but still. Let's talk about your approach to uh, Canadian history, to, to the, in particular to the history of black communities. What prompted you to bring together these 21 collaborators uh, to put this book together? What prompted you? Uh, for the longest time, I have been teaching, and Funke has been teaching along with me at York University, a course called African Canadian History. And we were reliant for a long time on some of the older texts that were published about Black Canadian history. Some of those texts tended to focus on aspects of Canadian history with which people were familiar and with which they were comfortable. Things like abolitionism, the Underground Railroad, uh, some things that would show up in like things like the Heritage Minute. And we became increasingly unsatisfied with what the, the, the publications with which we had, um, to which we had access. So we decided in a couple of years ago, now it is in 2017, uh, to pull together a new volume that would bring together the, the people who were working in the area, some of the scholars whose work uh, had, had gained traction, and to pull them together into one volume. So this volume not only talked about abolitionism and underground railroad, but goes far beyond. It talks about the development of the scholarship around slavery. It talks about the general histories uh, of, of Canada. It talks about the specific communities in Atlantic Canada. And so it does a geographic, a chronological uh, overview of Canadian, black Canadian history and it does so with some of the scholars who are making some of the important contributions at this time. This is an important book. It's 610 pages, and every one of the chapters is illuminating. What do you think this book represents at this point in the writing of Canadian history? I think what this book ultimately represents is the depth and breadth of the writing of Black Canadian history and Black Canadian studies more broadly. I think the field of Black Canadian history has developed and evolved so much over the years with scholars from various disciplines in geography, gender women's studies, sociology and literature, and even art history. And the desire of this volume was to bring all of these disciplinary changes together to actually talk about the growth and the evolution of the field, to see the ways in which scholars of Black Canada are uncovering new historical data and evidence, to think about the ways that they are revisiting old pieces of data to tell new stories, and just to talk about the dynamic and ongoing research that's happening in the field. And so I think 
the goal that uh, Michelle and I were really trying to emphasize here was that there's so much happening in this field and so many scholars are thinking about the collaborative nature of how we can talk about Black life in Canada. And this book really tries to emphasize that, this notion that there is much happening in the discipline of Black Canadian studies and history and that these scholars are in conversation with one another, they're revisiting new evidence and research to tell different kinds of stories and to tell more complex stories about Black life in Canada. Funke, are we, are we witnessing here a generational uh, transformation? I don't know if it's a generational transformation, but more like, a, I actually think it's more intergenerational. In a lot of ways, the volume brings together scholars who have been writing in the discipline of Black Canadian history and studies for several years. And it also puts them in conversation with new and emerging scholars, new theoretical frameworks and ideas. And so in a lot of ways, it actually thinks through an intergenerational conversation between what has been done in the past, how the past has been reworked to rethink and revisit new questions, but it also thinks through how many of these scholars are also pushing the boundaries, right, or asking different kinds of questions of Black Canadian history and Black Canadian studies. And so in many ways, it is, a, it is an amalgamation of both new and old. Uh, it is a rethinking of different kinds of questions. Uh, so maybe the, the contemporary moment has called a rethinking of some of the ways that we do history, uh, but I don't think it forgets uh, what has already been done. How did you come to choose the title of your book, Unsettling the Great White North? I'm curious because I know how hard it is to find a title. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, there, we know in the Canadian space, in, in, in the popular space, in the academic spaces as well, there is a frequent reference to Canada as the North as the Great North, as the White North, as the Great White North. Um, and this is often symbolized in geographies of snow and frozen tundra and just whiteness, and whiteness in geography in an inner sense which extends beyond the land to the people. Uh, so there is a projection of Canada to itself and to the world as a white space geographically white, demographically white, never mind who is actually here, that is the projection. And inside of that projection, there is a, an, an illusion that this occurred without problems, that this was a benign process, that the, uh, the, that the colonialism that happened to create this place that we call Canada was somehow a gentle settlement, a tolerant occupation, when, especially when you compare it to the other kinds of occupation across the Americas, in the Caribbean, in the United States. Canada is set up as something that is different, as white, as pure, as innocent. But based on our experiences and based on the histories that we study, we know that this, that an insistence on placing blackness within this so-called white space is in and of itself unsettling for many people. So when I would talk about, when Funke would talk about, when the scholars who are together in this, in this uh, collaboration would talk about placing black bodies in white spaces, it was very unsettling for some people. So we are deliberately unsettling the national narrative. We're 
unsettling the sense of the nation. Black Canadian history, we think, is intrinsically unsettling, and we embrace that unsettling um, nature of, of, this, of the project, and um, look forward to, to what kinds of conversations will, will emerge. So what kind of new directions does this book take? When you look at all these collaborators that you've brought together, what, what examples uh, do you think best illustrate these new directions? I think the volume takes us in a, a series of new directions, but at its root is to think through the way in which Black Canadian history and Black studies has really been in conversation with these broader recent conversations around social justice movements such as Black Lives Matter or Idle No More. And so contributors in the volume are asking us to consider the historical past as a way to better understand our present context and the implications for where we are now. And a significant way in which the uh, collection thinks through these ideas is to ground important theoretical frameworks around Blackness and racialization in Canada to better understand Black life. And I also think uh, Michelle and I were really intentional about the kinds of questions that the volume was seeking to answer around ideas of Blackness and modernity, the way in which we can revisit data to tell new stories, under-researched areas of Black Canadian history and studies. And new dimensions in this piece are really asking us to think about how scholars do Black Canadian history, how do we do Black Canadian studies, and the processes by which we seek to uncover and recover Black Canadian stories. It strikes me that one of the great difficulties would be to to capture the very many different communities among Black Canadians. The Black community is hardly monolithic. What difficulties does this pose for a historian? I think you're right in pointing out that there are multiple and diverse Black communities that exist across Canada. And more often than not, when we see mainstream discussions about Blackness in Canada, it often structures these communities as monolithic, when in fact they've always had varying philosophies, goals, and challenges. Conversely, the encounters of anti-Black racism that Black Canadians experience seems to have a level of consistency over time and place. And so the contributors of this volume actually embrace that diversity of Black Canadian communities to tell a more complex story about their contributions and the challenges that Black people face trying to dismantle broader social and systemic issues. So in a lot of ways, to answer your question, Patrice, it's it's not that difficult if you embrace the ways in which Black Canadian communities have a diverse set of philosophies, ways of being, and ways of knowing and seeing the world. And so the volume really tried as much as possible to capture some of this from a geographic standpoint, from a theoretical standpoint, from a disciplinary standpoint, and all of that comes out in a series of ways. I think the biggest challenge for us was trying to get all of it, and hence why the volume is so large, is that we tried as much as possible to get this kind of encompassing story. But, you know, all of it is really just pictures, snapshots, and um, particular lenses into understanding Black Canadian experiences, but it absolutely doesn't tell the entirety of the story. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying that while the Black community is, in fact, not the furthest thing from monolithic, the experience is fairly common. The experience of living as a Black in Canada is fairly common. Am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, absolutely, that there are moments 
when you see and when the scholars in this volume discuss uh, the ways in which Black people encounter broader social systems, broader political systems, uh, that they start to experience forms of racial discrimination, that they start to experience levels of anti-Black racism that is very characteristic of uh, Canadian institutions as a whole. And those encounters are either parallel or very similar. Uh, and so the volume tries to give place and space for those moments while also allowing for the complex ways in which persons of African descent uh, sought to structure their communities, sought to uh, structure their own individual identities amidst all of these broader challenges. To what degree is the history of Blacks in Canada a history of immigration? To, to the extent that the history of Canada is a history of immigration, uh, the history of Black people in Canada is to a great extent a history of immigration, but it is not only that. So talking about the immigration uh, side of things, at the foundations of what we now call this place called Canada, there was my, there were migrations of persons of African descent from what would become the United States. So people who we would now call African-American, some of them were enslaved, some of them were free. We have communities, identifiable communities, the black loyalists, the so-called refugees of the War of 1812. We have coming from the, in the late uh, 18th century, people who were deported from Jamaica, I'm not far from where I am today, uh, the Jamaican Maroons who were taken to Nova Scotia and then went on to Sierra Leone. We have people coming uh, through the Underground Railroad on their own uh, into Canada throughout the 19th century, into, you know, post, post, um, post-slavery into, into Canada. And then in the 20th century, we have significant uh, immigrations of people from the Caribbean, people from Latin America, and people from what we now call continental Africa. So to a great extent, it is about the movement of people of African descent into the place called Canada. However, because there have been generations of people who are there, 12 generations, 13 generations of people who have been in Canada, it is not solely a history of immigration. It's a history of immigration and people who have built this country uh, from, its, from its very foundations. Very often they are forget, forgotten in the, in the national narrative, and it is important to, to place them there. So it's not only about coming in, looking for help, looking for tolerance, looking for assistance. It's about people who have contributed to the foundations and the very structures of the society from its inception. I mean, it strikes me, again, the, you know, the, the, the history of a young Somali family, let's say in 2010, would be very different from a Jamaican family in the 1960s and 1970s. It would be conditioned by their, the, the, the moment of entry, by the level of support, from the community, from government. Uh, it strikes me as though, again, it makes it very difficult to write quote-unquote black history when you have very different realities. But your message is still a very strong one and resonates with me is that no, no matter what the origins are, the experience is, is, is roughly the same or certainly worthy of comparison, certainly worthy of, of, of appreciation. 
Yes, for sure. And and this is what Funky was alluding to earlier, that no matter when it is that we look at these communities, 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st century, what the thing that's, that links them together is the systemic barriers that they face, right? The racism that they face, the anti-blackness that they face might, di might differ in degree, might differ in its impact, but it is there. It is in the very foundations. It is in the very DNA of Canada, it is in the DNA of the Americas, because people were brought into this place as chattel. People were brought into this place as property. And that, that definition of their being continues on beyond the, the legality of slavery. The mindset that made it possible to enslave, brutalize, dehumanize people of African descent didn't simply disappear with the change of a law. So the, the discrimination and prejudice and racism continues, whether it's a Somali family of the 2020s or it's a Jamaican family of the 1960s. To what degree is the history of the black communities in Canada a story about class? To what degree does, the, does, does class play into the historical experience, and to what degree is ethnicity important? And, I, and of course, and I will, we'll talk about gender in a few minutes. So I, I think class plays into it um, from multiple perspectives. Uh, one is that to a great extent, people of African descent in Canada were seen as workers. They were recruited as workers. They were um, held in place as workers, whether it is through the domestic scheme or what we're now experiencing, continue to experience through the agricultural schemes, uh, labor schemes that continue on. So people of African descent are seen as workers, not just as workers, but as workers in, slotted into particular kinds of jobs, jobs that are about service and servitude. So that so class plays into that, and when uh, when people came into the domestic scheme, for example, there were women who had been teachers and nurses in the Caribbean, and who could not come into Canada under those um, auspices. They had to come in as servants because that was their um, imagined and real uh, slot within the can Canadian society. So class plays a role insofar as class is racialized, right? There is a, an, an imagination that black people belong to a certain class. And so when we have our black lawyers, doctors, and, and, and so on, there's often surprise. Oh, I'm so surprised that they're so accomplished. I'm so surprised that they're so articulate. I'm so surprised. But that surprise comes from a place of racism. Why are you surprised? When other groups come in, you're not surprised when they, uh, when they make progress when their communities become um, effectual and effective, but somehow there's always surprise around black, black, um, black movement and black progress. So class plays a, a role there. Where, where traditional historiographies are concerned, however, class as a, as a, as a method of looking at the black community is, is emerging, insofar as the historiography is emerging. So, so you said earlier that the black community is not monolithic. It's not monolithic, not only in terms of its ethnicities and places of origin, but it's not monolithic 
class-wise either. There are people of African descent who are incredibly wealthy in Canada, and there are communities who are, who are not. So that disaggregation we are starting to do as a community of scholars. Am I wrong in thinking that the writing of Black history has evolved from studies of resilience to examinations of racism? Am I wrong in seeing that transformation in the history, in the writing of Black history? Uh, I, I, I don't think those things can be pulled apart, actually. I think that the resilience, well, this book, for example, this book has as its basic theme resistance and resilience. And those two things are merged together. They come from the same place. Because we don't want to talk just about black the, the experiences of blackness as oppression and discrimination. It is also an experience of creativity and joy and resilience and life. And so we want to make sure that black joy comes through, black life comes through, black creativity comes through. But that resilience comes. Uh, what 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 are people being resilient to? They are being resilient uh, in in contexts of being excluded, of being of facing resistance, of f facing discrimination, and so they resist where they can, and they they're resistant in their resilience. Now, Michelle, you contributed a chapter on the recruitment of domestic labor in the first half of the 20th century. And maybe this will bring all these things that we've been talking about together. The idea was to allow for women from the West Indies to come to Canada, but it hit a good deal of government resistance. What did your research uncover? So the chapter that I look at um, looks at the, the movement of Caribbean women into Canada in that first 50 years, because what the, the chapter actually focuses on that period between the two domestic schemes. There was a, a scheme that was launched from Guadeloupe between 1910 and 1911, and th that hundred women from Guadeloupe went primarily into Montreal. Although they did well, and there were glowing reports about the work that they did, the government decided to stop the scheme after just one year because they were concerned that the women would become mothers, that somehow the, the black community would grow from these hundred women and it would become a problem. So the second scheme, which more people know about, started in 1955 and ended in 1967. Uh, government to government agreements, and over that period, several thousand women came into Canada. But this chapter looks at the period between those schemes. And the argument here is that the Canadian Immigration Services, as part of the Canadian government, put up not just roadblocks, but incredible barriers to women who wanted to be, uh, to come to Canada as domestic workers or, and to the employers within Canada who wanted to recruit those women. So they would write to the Minister of Immigration and ask, why can't these women come? They are British citizens. Remember, this is the 19. 20s, 30s, 40s, they are British citizens, we are part of the same empire. What is the problem? Why are they being blocked? Well, Canada made it clear that as far as they were concerned, the British Empire consisted only of the white colonies, and they made that clear in the law. 
and they put up barriers to these women. And the, the immigration officers were very clear. They said, these women are going to be a problem for all time to come, quotes. And secondly, quotes, they are unlikely to be an asset to this country. So the, the racism and sexism combined uh, made it almost impossible for women of African descent from the Caribbean to come into Canada. Judging by your article, Michelle, you had no trouble documenting this. None at all. The, the archives were very kind. <laughs> <laughs> Funke, let's turn to your chapter. It's very different, and it focuses on the challenges of writing the history of blacks in Canada, particularly when it comes to women. Uh, what did your findings show? I think uh, a significant element in the chapter is to think about, from a methodological approach, the ways in which oral history can both be restorative and political in the kinds of uh, stories that it tells. So the recording, the writing, the interpreting of Black women's stories offers us a series of opportunities to tell more complex stories uh, that challenge the processes of erasure, particularly in Canada, but also stories that highlight the richness of Black life in Canada. And so in a lot of ways, my chapter is seeking to feature the stories of Black women as a way to demonstrate how they were active and conscious participants in the foundations and the building of Canada. And in the, in the case of the women that I spoke to, I was also um, fascinated by the way in which Black women were also deeply invested and active in the development of educational structures and anti-racist education in Canada. And so for me, this, this chapter was really trying to think through the complex ways in which we can conduct and do oral history, its radical potential for creating different narratives and placing persons of African descent, and particularly Black women, at the center of those conversations, and allowing oral history uh, an opportunity for us to better understand these intersections between Black women's professional lives and locate Black women as knowledge producers. Because so often at times when we see the writing of Black Canadian history, we often talk about the processes that were enacted on Black communities and particularly enacted on Black women. And so this chapter was trying to flip some of those discourses to talk about the way in which Black women made conscious choices about who they were, about the stories that they chose to tell, but also about their deliberate and resistive acts in trying to push against these broader discriminatory policies and practices, both in school systems, but also in Canadian society as a whole. And so it really was trying to make sense of uh, the oral history practice itself, the way in which oral history offers these opportunities to tell stories, but also tells us of particular kinds of Black feminist practices that uh, enrich the way in which we do historical research and archival work. And Funke, you've done most of your work so far, uh, and I don't want to be—I uh, don't want to simplify this. Your work has been on focused on women teachers, and I liked your article in particular because it talked about some of the difficulties in getting your witnesses, getting your your oral histories to be as revealing as possible, or as as revealing as you would like them to be. Can you speak more to that reality? Absolutely. Uh, the chapter itself really tries to highlight the relationships that researchers and uh, interviewees have to have in order to tell uh, stories from a place of, that's ethical and from a place that really thinks through and considers the long-standing history of, of Black Canadian communities. 
that it, it really does involve a, me a method of uh, reciprocity, that in order to, to, as academics, in order for us to do this work of oral history to extract knowledge and information from community members, there needs to be a level of investment in those communities. There needs to be a level uh, by which we think and consider these histories and the ways that those histories uh, are still very much present in the lived realities of these women. And so it was thinking through how do you make sense of these hesitations, the pauses that come as part of the oral interview process in order to give weight to the kinds of stories and the narratives that Black women wanted and chose to tell. And so a lot of it is to think through the complexity of doing historical research in lived communities and living communities, but also doing historical research on Black Canadian communities, given this long-standing history, but also the long-standing history of academic institutions, of historical institutions, who have sought often at times to silence or to marginalize uh, Black women. So in a lot of ways, much of my work seeks to uh, make deliberate and conscious choices around highlighting Black women's stories, particularly from the lens of education, because so much of what we talk about education centers around students, and particularly it centers around Black male students as a way of understanding the challenges of education. And so I really wanted to have a broader conversation about the diverse groupings of people who interacted and had encounters with education systems across Canadian history. Of course, you're very well positioned because one of the more vivid, vivid passages in your in your chapter is, is uh, the fact that one of the people you were interviewing wanted to make sure that you had you had the the experience she had had as an educator, as someone who had studied uh, her her, her B. Ed. You, you you've completed your your Bachelor of Education. Did do you have taught also, Funke? You taught at the uh, at the at the uh, school level. Yeah, I taught at the elementary school level, not for very long. I went right into a uh, graduate program pretty quickly, but I did uh, teach in, in Toronto and also Windsor, Ontario, where I did um, most of my certification. And so in a lot of ways, there was this uh, insider-outsider relationship that allowed me the ability and the capacity to be able to speak to my research participants and, and with a language of familiarity around these institutional challenges that Black women face. And while there were generational differences, there were differences based on place of birth and all of those things, uh, class-based assumptions that were also there, I think at the root of these uh, conversations was an understanding, right? Uh, an understanding of some of the challenges that Black women confront in educational institutions, in uh, post-secondary, secondary institutions that, that challenge us and uh, challenge the, the kinds of work that we can do, but also the, the potential for, for resistance and restoration and transformation in educational institutions. My next question really is, is to both of you. You're both in a unique position to shape future scholars in this exciting field. In what directions should the history of the Blacks, the Black communities in Canada proceed in your view? Are there new topics that you would like to see explored? What would you be telling a young scholar who shows up at your office and says, I want to do black history? Where do I go? What would you tell them, Michelle? Or what <laughs> well, are you telling them now, I should say? I have, well, exactly. I was going to say, what am I telling them now? Uh, so for some of the uh, persons who have expressed an interest in, in black history, the areas that seem to be attracting attention and that I would I encourage that attention is in the area, for example, of slavery studies. 
uh, there is a growing interest in not just that slavery occurred in Canada, but what kind of slavery? To whom did this occur? What were their lives like? What were their experiences like? And we are finding more and more that scholars are able to stitch together the little slips of information to make to, to create more holistic pictures of what that was like. So more on that for sure. Um, another area in which I think there could be much more work being done is on the experiences of women of African descent in particular, so women and gender history, not just around labor, but about women's lives, about their reproductive lives, their productive lives, their family lives, their lives as mothers, their lives as, as children, um, just uh, women and gender important. And the third area that I would like to see more on is the cultural history of people of African descent in, in Canada. Uh, around those moments of joy I mentioned earlier, the, around the dancing, the music, around the food, around the, the incredible changes in cuisine that people of African descent have introduced to spaces like Toronto. Uh, what is that about? Why, why has it been so attractive? And what does that mean? What does it mean to create identity through culture? That's fascinating. Funke, what do you think? What are you telling your your uh, your young protégés? Where should they be going? I think I'm noticing a lot more uh, graduate students becoming increasingly interested in activism, the way in which black activism shapes um, the, the political landscape of Canada, particularly if you think through, you know, uh, leftist mobilizations, young student and university radical action, uh, how were persons of African descent part of those moments, and where do they fit into these broader conversations of activism in Canada, whether it be political activism or uh, radical student underground activism. All of these things, I think, is becoming uh, increasingly important as social justice movements are really looking for these quintessential Canadian, Black Canadian leaders that have been part of these early structures to help them understand their present-day context. I also would love to have increasing conversations and directions around the merging of Black and Indigenous identities in Canada. Uh, we're talking about, you know, doubly marginalized communities, but Black and Indigenous communities have had interactions since the arrival of the first person of African descent in Canada. And so I am very curious to see the development of writing that seeks to have these more complex conversations around how persons of African descent were interacting with, borrowed from, learned from, and collaborated with Indigenous populations and vice versa. Very early on in some of my own research on Black Canadian education, I've come across right encounters where Black educators were uh, working at Indigenous day schools. What did those interactions look like? And so I'm very curious to see the development of the field along these moments. And then I think uh, another element that a direction of Black Canadian history can go is in the evolution of theoretical frameworks around Blackness in general, Blackness in Canada, because so much of the work and the research of, of Blackness in Canada has borrowed from a diverse range of uh, scholarship across the Americas. And so to develop a theoretical foundation that is rooted in the Canadian context, I think is the next kind of venture. And I, in many ways, contributors in this volume are already doing that and will continue to mentor and support other 
scholars who are developing and emerging into the field to literally think through some of these theoretical framings and concepts. So I think there's so much potential in the field of Black Canada, and I'm just I'm so excited to see to see where it goes. There are so many exciting possibilities for sure. But now let me turn to the classic Champlain Society question. The Champlain Society, of course, was created in 1905 to provide documentation to Canadians to make the the historic documents of, of Canada's past relevant and available to Canadians. So I'm asking you, what are the sources that are available for the writing of black history in this country? Are they, are they out there? Are they uncovered? Do they need to be uncovered? So I think that uh, there is a lot that is uncovered but perhaps has not been identified or, or it's been uncovered but it has been ignored so there are places in the in the imperial archives let's let's start big and then come down small uh, in the imperial archives in the british imperial archives uh, where the questions of the movement of people of African descent can be identified both the french and british imperial archives uh, would be able to help us in fleshing out some of that black history. Um, at the national level, Library and Archives Canada has important funds that are available already. Some of them have been looked at, some of them have already been redacted, uh, some of them are are easily identified, but others not, because reading against the grain in the National Archives would give us an opportunity to look at what do we mean if we were to look at Funke's world of schools? Who are these people who are being recruited into these schools at this time? Who are these people who are coming to do farm work starting in 1966 out of Jamaica? Who are these people? So the immigration um, archives within the National Archives can help us uh, to a great deal to fill those stories out. And then at the provincial level, uh, the archives of Ontario, I know, they are currently, as we speak, uh, opening up their, their black archives and pushing hard to fill those archives. There, there's a lot that has happened at the provincial level, and I'm sure that in Nova Scotia, it is the same thing. In Alberta, it is the same thing. In British Columbia, there's an increasing interest at the, at the provincial level about what was happening. That the cities, at the township city of Toronto has archives that are important to us. And perhaps even more importantly, the black communities. So within our, just to use Ontario as our example and Nova Scotia as our second example, there are distinct black communities who, who were established as black communities, who continue on to identify as black communities, and they have done an incredible job in preserving and maintaining their archives. So places like Buxton, Amherstburg, in Halifax, there are places where you can find black archives, dedicated black archives. Um, and I'll just say two more things and I'll leave it to Funke. Where oral histories are concerned, or oral history is an important part of black history, not just because black people tend not to appear in the archives, but orality is an important part of black culture. So that keeping stories going, keeping black traditions going is an important part of storytelling of, of what it is that black people do. 
and we have been able to gather some of those oral histories and I'd just like to give a little shout out to the Multicultural History uh, Society of Ontario who in the 1970s in the 1980s did all of these interviews and who knew at the time how valuable they would become. And then finally, uh, family histories uh, are there yet to be really identified and deposited, preserved, but there is a lot that is available. So the old, the old uh, story that we heard, oh, we can't do black history because there aren't any archives, is simply not true. Funke, what about you? What are the new, uh, what are the sources out there that can bring new light to the history of blacks in Canada? Absolutely. Um, it, it, some of the newer places that I think people are looking at right now in areas like New Brunswick are in cemeteries and graveyards, right, to look through old traditional church histories, old local histories to talk about the way in which segregated uh, graveyards, right, can tell us so stories about Black Canadian experiences and become the physical markers of the Black presence in some of these spaces where the histories have largely been erased. And then there are also these smaller, more local organizations and archival places that tend to keep uh, narratives of someone's aunt or uh, a community member who had, who wrote their own biography and wrote their own story, and that's housed in a local archive or a local community like like the Buxton National Historic Museum and site become places where these uh, very local stories of longstanding generational community members are housed that people often forget because they haven't been institutionalized in the same kinds of ways. And I've also been noticing an increasing emphasis and focus on photographic archives. So if you take, for example, the recent uh, exhibition that's been featured at the Art Gallery of Ontario, or even if we look through the Toronto Public Library's uh, photographic archive, we see very clearly the, the presence and existence of what Black community activism looked like, right, in the 50s and 60s, uh, what uh, community members were doing in these local spaces and how that was photographed over time. And then if you think through some of these broader institutional archives, so lots of local university archives uh, in a lot of ways also have the stories of persons of African descent. Uh, yearbooks, for example, tell us stories or tidbits or snippets of uh, scholars. Uh, many of those uh, people who went to post-secondary institutions in Canada were able to um, have their dissertations or their research papers published in these spaces that tell us a little bit about how we can find information and evidence about what was happening during these uh, moments in, in time that I think are really important. And I've also been hearing more about scholars who are starting to do work on uh, local geographic spaces. So they're mapping, right, the presence and place of Black communities on the basis of the names of roads and streets, right? And so it's really thinking through and expanding the where we think evidence of persons of African descent might exist, right? And sometimes they're not always in these fine categories that we find uh, in fawns at the archive, but they're actually found in these smaller local communities or uh, through that person that lives down the street from you that, you know, has a box of evidence that they don't think is important and encouraging them to bring it forward and, and moving it into these other spaces so that everyone else can see um, how rich that information is. Well, I have to say, both your book and your insights on the 
potential new sources for the writing of the history of black communities in Canada is inspiring. Thank you so much for spending the time with me today to talk about your book and about black history in Canada. Thank you. Thank you so much. I was speaking with Michelle Johnson and Funke Aladejibi, editors of Unsettling the Great White North, Black Canadian History. It's published by the University of Toronto Press. Before I go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. Thanks also to our growing list of sponsors, including the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill Queen's University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. There's a way for you, the listener, to support this podcast. Please go to champlainsociety.ca to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society receives no government support for its operations, which always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded as the Omicron virus was ruining our lives on January 11th, 2022 by our producer, Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.